May 1940 was a very, very dark day in Great Britain, uh, a very dark period. If you're a much of a student of history, you'll of course know that's the middle of the Second World War, um, and in May, they'd just evacuated 300 and something thousand troops from the beaches of France, leaving all their equipment behind and uh, transporting them across the, across the channel in a flotilla of little tiny craft uh, and had brought them home. And that, that was against the odds because everybody just assumed that because they were trapped on that beach and uh, the Germans were bombing and strafing at will, that there was no hope at all that they would get anybody home. And uh, rallying to the call, a whole pile of small boat owners um, mastered their vessels across the channel and picked up whoever they could pick up and managed to bring home 308,000, I think it was, Allied troops. Quite an astonishing thing. But if you thought that was a challenge, put yourself in Winston Churchill's boots now as they are now back in Britain with all their armament on the other side of the channel and facing straight away the fury of the German army that had blitzkrieged its way right through the whole of Europe and was now eyeing off Britain. There are some pictures, you know, that are shown of um, Hitler kind of looking through binoculars over the channel and he can see the White Cliffs of Dover and, uh, and quite clearly the nation is not out of peril yet. And in such a time as this, one of the things I loved about Winston Churchill when I was kind of growing up and I read the stories was how he had such a turn of phrase, how he was able to muster, uh, you know, such hope and optimism in the face of what was perilous and what would look like a pointless cause. And one of his great speeches finished with, this was their finest hour. And I want to read it for you just if I can, just the last part of it. It was, a, it was part of a long speech. But he went on the radio and he spoke to the whole nation about where they really were right at this point. It's up there on the screen. Hope you can read it. Um, this is what he said at the end of his speech. What General Weygand uh, uh, called the Battle of France is over. I expect the Battle of Britain is about to begin. Upon this battle depends the survival of Christian civilization. Upon it depends our own British life and the long continuity of our institutions and our empire. The whole fury and might of the enemy must very soon be turned on us. Hitler knows that he will have to break us in this island or lose the war. If we can stand up to him, all Europe may be free and the life of the world may, be, may move forward into broad, sunlit uplands. But if we fail then the whole world, including the United States, including all that we have known and cared for, will sink into the abyss of a new dark age made more sinister and perhaps more protracted by the lights of perverted science. Let us therefore brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say, this was their finest hour. Stirs the blood, doesn't it? Doesn't it? I'm trying to imagine myself sitting around the wireless, you know, and, and, uh, and wondering, you know, and knowing that we've just suffered a major catastrophic 
military failure, what will this leader say? And he says that. I was reminded about this when I was reading chapter 3 of Nehemiah. We're in the middle of a study of Nehemiah. And I was trying to think, you know, like as Nehemiah went back to, back to uh, his uh, city of, of uh, ancestry, um, what he might say, how he might inspire uh, such a dispirited bunch of people to get and rebuild those walls and to restore their nation. How do you lift dispirited people um, and have them rise to a challenge like that? Last week we saw, uh, as we tailed off the last chapter, we saw how Nehemiah uh, challenged them with a strong word and how they, they rose to that challenge. They got excited about rebuilding the long ruined walls of Jerusalem. And in chapter 3, what we see is we see the work taking place. And what I'm choosing to do today with this text is we're going to look right through this whole text. It's one of those texts, you know, that for a lot of people they look at and go, it's just a bunch of names and it's a bunch of Jewish names, a bunch of long names. I'd trip over those names. We don't tend to read it. We like the action story, but this is the action story right here. And as you, as you walk through this with me, I want you to take note of the little quirky little bits in the text that tell us a massive amount about the culture and the heart of these people as they set about this task. Remember, I I regularly say to you that if you see a little detail in the text of Scripture, it's never there by accident. It's there for a reason. It's full of meaning. So let's start off, and we're going to put it up. I think um, Gabe's going to sort of walk it through as we go. Here we go. Strap yourself in. This is a story and a half. It starts with, you'll notice here, the spiritual leaders. They took the lead in this whole process, in this whole endeavour. It says here that Eliashib, the high priest, and his fellow priests went to work and rebuilt the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set its doors in place, building as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated, and as far as the Tower of Hananel. The men of Jericho built the adjoining section and Zakur, son of, son of Imri, built next to them. The fish gate was rebuilt by the sons of Hassaniah. Have mercy on me this morning, everybody, as I work through these names. They laid its beams and put its doors and bolts and bars in place. So we see this mighty work starts and it starts with the spiritual leaders. The spiritual leaders lead the way. They, they, if you like, in this narrative, kick this work off. One of the things that I noticed here as I was reading through is that some people actually did a double workload. Some people put their shoulders to the, to the, to the wheel a bit harder. And here we have a couple of them. And later on, I want you to listen for later on, if these names come up again, you'll know that they actually went a second mile. Here we have it. Merimoth, son of Uriah, the son of Hakoz, repaired the next section. Next to him, Neshalom, son of Berechiah, the son of Meshezabel, made repairs. And next to him, Zadok, son of Barnah, also made repairs. Now, right now, they don't look particularly any more impressive than anybody else that's there. But later on, you'll see. Wait until you see them come back again. There were some people on this building program who didn't lift a finger. They weren't going to help no matter what. 
Have a look at this. The next section was repaired by the men of Tekoa, but their nobles would not put their shoulders to the work under their supervisors. Interesting little fact, isn't it? Why? We read last week about how the nobles of the land were in league with those who were opposing the work. I'm wondering whether they're kind of looking at the work, thinking, which side do we back here? Do we back the work going ahead or do we back the people who have always had our back financially? And they wouldn't work. But the men of Tekoa worked. They didn't wait for their leaders to step into the process. They, they got stuck into it. And look out for them later on as well as we come through. Many worked solo. Some people just did a little bit of the work themselves. And there were some who worked together. And here are a couple who worked together. The Jashanar gate was repaired by Jehoiada, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Besedeah. They partnered together. They laid its beams, they put its doors with its bolts and bars in place. Together they did it. I love the fact that people decided to work together and, and, and that, you know, probably understood this concept, two are better than one, because the return on their work. There were people who came from a great distance to help build this wall and that's because it was a good work. Next to them... Next to those, those we just spoke about, repairs were made by men from Gibeon and Mizpah, Melatiah of Gibeon and Jaden of Maranoth, places under the authority of the governor of Trans-Euphrates. Why were they there? Because it was a good work and they wanted to be part of this good work. You'll notice in the next part here, some people took time off their work. Some people took time away from their regular job to do this work. Uzziel, son of uh, Hahiah, one of the goldsmiths, repaired the next section and Hananiah, one of the perfume makers, made repairs next to that. Look at that. They've kind of stepped away from their business for this good work that needs to be done. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Rephiah, son of Hur, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section. We see here there were some who undertook a small section and um, maybe just the bit opposite their home. And I look at that and I'm thinking, okay, well, they played their part. They did this bit. Now, joining this, Jediah, son of Haramuth, made repairs opposite his house and Hattush, son of Hashabaniah, made repairs next to him. Malchiah, son of Harun, and Hashab, son of Pehat Moab, repaired another section and the Tower of the Ovens. You see, everybody's kind of bringing what they can bring to this wonderful endeavour that's needed to restore this nation. Notice here that Shalom worked with his daughters. That's, you know, like specifically mentioned there. He didn't have sons, but he pressed his daughters into the work. I wonder whether he got ragged a bit by this. I wonder whether people came alongside and, and, and wondered about this. I wonder whether his daughters silenced the mockers maybe because this would have been a scandalous and strange thing to do in his day to have women uh, working in this way. We live in a different world. Thank you, we live in this different world. But in this day, 
And so we see Shalom, son of Halashat, ruler of the half-district of Jerusalem, repaired the next section with the help of his daughters. And notice here that while some did a small amount and just a bit in front of their house, some people took on a massive amount of work to do. They, they had the, maybe the resources to do it, but maybe they had the heart for it as well. And there's a story here told about a group who did 600 metres of this wall. Now, I've been to Jerusalem a couple of times. I've walked around that wall and I can tell you, um, I kind of sense that that was not a small amount of work at all. In fact, I've got a bit of history in building walls uh, up in the gardens. Who's been to the Bendigo Botanic Gardens and seen the big dry stone walls there? Kilometres of it. Yep, well, I was part of the crew that built that. Can I tell you, I know how much it took to build that. This was a big undertaking. Here they were. The valley gate was repaired by Hanan and the residents of Zenoa. They rebuilt it and put its doors and their bolts and bars in place. That's a major work. They also repaired a 1,000 cubits, nearly 600 metres, nearly 0.6 of a kilometre of massive wall. The dung gate was repaired by Malkiah, son of Rakhab, ruler of the district of Bet Hakaron. He, he rebuilt it and put its doors with their bolts and bars in place. The fountain gate was repaired by Shalom, son of Kohose, ruler of the district of Mizpah. He rebuilt it, roofing it over and putting its doors and bolts and bars in place. He also repaired the wall of the pool of Siloam by the king's gardens, as far as the steps going down from the city of David. Beyond him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of the half-district of Betzur, made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David as far as the artificial pool and the house of heroes. They are continually engaging and building this wall. You'll notice here that the, there's a religious order called the Levites, very well known in the Old Testament culture, and they did some repairs. Next to him, the repairs were made by the Levites under Rahum, son of uh, Bani. And then you see others there who are as well. It says in verse 18, Next to him the repairs were made by the fellow Levites under Binui, son of Henadad, ruler of the other half-district of Kilah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, repaired another section. They've come back and done another section from the point facing the ancient, uh, the ascent to the armory as far as the angle of the wall. Now, you've got to love Barak. Have a look at Barak. says to him, Next to him, Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section. Do you love that little word, zealously? There's not an accident that it's there. How do you picture, picture Barak at the wall? You can picture people saying, Hey, uh, lunch break. No, 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 no. Get away. I've got to build. You can just see it. You can go, you know, he's not stopping. He just wants to do this and he's doing this zealously which implies to me with a great heart, with great passion, with great joy. Do you get that feeling? He's not doing this under sufferance. He's doing this because this is a great work and he has this sense, I think, of it's a God work. So Barak, son of Zabai, zealously repaired another section from the angle to the entrance of the house of Eliashib, the high priest, and then, as I said before, there were those who had a second crack. Here we go. Merimoth, son of Uriah. Do you remember him? The son of Hakoz repaired another section from the entrance of Eliashib's house to the end of it. 
You know, there are quite a few that actually went back and had a second crack, carried the, mile, carried the pack the second mile. The priests then rebuilt their precinct around their houses. But you notice here, if you look at this whole story, there's a part for everyone in this whole process of building these walls. That's what I love about this. I love about that chapter. It is really, seriously, one of my favourite chapters in the scripture because it is the story of God's people working together to do a good work. Do you remember the nobles uh, who were nowhere to be seen before? In verse 27 we read these words, Next to them the men of Tekoa repaired another section. They didn't just repair that first section without any help from their leaders. They just basically left their leaders sipping tea, I think, and went off and uh, got cracking with another section. And so it went all the way through. The priests made repairs above the horse gate in front of uh, their own house and right through. And we see there again people having another crack as they were going. I want to say to you, this was their finest hour. This was their finest hour. A great image of the people of God pulling together and if you look back through the history of the Old Testament, I was talking to somebody during the week, a friend of mine, she said she didn't like the book of Nehemiah much. And I said, no, no, this chapter, this chapter is the pivot point. This is the tipping point of a nation. This is their finest hour as they pulled together to bring together not just the walls, but as they worked into repairing their nation. You know, the scriptures reveal there are several places in, the, in, in as we read scripture where you could say this was their finest hour. Like uh, where we see something like this happen before. Exodus 25, there's the appeal for building the tabernacle. Do you remember we talked about that a couple of, three, three or four years ago? They, they, Moses mounted an appeal. God gave him the specifications for all the tabernacle and for all the furniture in the tabernacle and they needed gold and they needed silver and they needed the very best things in order to make this the very best expression they could of uh, honouring this God who had brought them out of Egypt. Do you remember what the... If, if you don't know, the story goes like this. They put out this appeal and then the, the craftsman came to Moses and said, tell the people to stop bringing stuff, they're bringing too much. They're bringing too much. Stop, we've got more than we need. <laughs> they were so eager, so passionate. It was their finest hour in that moment. They really understood something. And, and God came and dwelt among them in that tabernacle. They understood, I think, how important that was for their relationship with this, with this lover who had drawn them out of Egypt. In Acts chapter 4, we read something like this. It was maybe, you might say, might have been you could classify it as the church's finest hour. In Acts chapter 4, verse 22 to 36, we see how the believers kind of caught a vision for what this kingdom looks like, this, this new life, this simple life that Jesus called them to. And so they gave all their belongings and they, they kind of pulled it all. And no one said anything was his own anymore. And, and everybody shared and, and nobody went without what a, what a wonderful expression of a completely redeemed culture, a completely redeemed life. 
Of course, we read the story in Acts chapter 5, one chapter later, of a couple who wanted to get in on this, Ananias and Sapphira, they came in and they, they wanted to do this, but they weren't, their hearts weren't right in this. And so they kept some back while saying they were giving everything. See, with the finest hour sometimes comes the most grievous hour as well. In Romans 16, we read Paul, you know, in his last chapter of that particular epistle and he speaks about all the people who are part of this journey with him. I kind of think it's the New Testament version of, if you like, Nehemiah chapter 3 where Paul talks about how this person is, is brought this and this person brought this and greet this person because... And, and he lists all these people in gratitude and thanks to God for their heart, their finest hour. The scripture suggests that in such experiences, when God's people band together for a common cause, for, as Nehemiah said, this good work, they meet their finest hour. But the finest hour was normally either followed by or it was following a darkest hour. In Exodus 25, we read, you know, we, we just discussed how people brought their gifts and there's so much that they had to stop. But then a couple of generations later on, a few generations later on maybe, we read these words in Judges. In those days there was no king in Israel. Every man did what every man thought was right in his own eyes. We have this incredibly self-centred culture coming out now. Dark times. And can I say, on the back of that dark time, Israel plunged into the abyss that led it to ultimately be exiled and to have to go back and rebuild their nation again. In Acts chapter 4, as I said before, we, we see... If you read right through the epistles, if you read those epistles with an honest eye, you'll see that there was a lot of struggle in the churches post that kind of finest hour moment with worldliness, squabbling, drifting away. See, every time church gets to its finest hour, it's always got to be thinking about the next hour because the finest hour passes and we find ourselves so easily seeing it as a moment of history rather than as a way of life. You know, if I read nothing else in this uh, beautiful image of these people working together banding together to create something beautiful to do this good work it is that unity unity is so important I can't stress enough the importance of unity the power in unity in Psalm 133 it says that God commands a blessing when his people are in unity and that's when our finest hour comes when God is blessing us because we have been faithful to what he calls us to. So my prayer is 
My prayer is that every hour in our life as a church and life as a community will be our finest hour. Let me pray. Lord, we just want to bring to you this church. We want to bring to you ourselves. We realise that churches are, in a sense, an institution that have up times and down times. If we track the history of the church, we'll see the whole church globally has been up and down. It's been in moments of the finest hour and it's been moments of darkness. But you are the one constant. We want to hear your voice speak to us, Lord, about what it means for us to be your people in this church. And we want to be responding to what you say to us because we know that when we respond and when we bring all that we are and when we serve this good work that you've called us to, which is redemptive to our community and healing to those around us, when we respond in obedience to that and we then see you do what you do, we meet our finest hour. My prayer is, Lord, that you will help us all to be a people who are part of the good work that you've called us to, that you'll help us to find our part to play, whether it be small, whether it be large, whether it be local, whether it be global, whether it be something we like or something we're not sure we like. We just want to bless your heart. And so we figuratively see the work you've called us, this good work you've called us to. We figuratively see those walls that Nehemiah was building as, if you like, an image of that. And we, Lord Jesus, would ask you to help us to step toward that, to what you're building, that we might meet our finest hour as your people, we pray. Amen.